Good to see you in the room. Good to see you online as well. So, you may know we've been taking a four-week detox, an attempt to refresh and reset and detox some of the key aspects of our lives. We're looking for a less toxic, a more healthy, a more God-focused 2024. And of the many things that we could have looked at under the term the theme of detox, we chose four. Detox your mind, detox your body, detox your relationships, and this morning, detox your identity. Here's a definition I found online of detox. It's a process or a period of time in which one abstains from or rids the body of toxic or unhealthy substances. Detox your identity today. Now, we're going to read some verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus back in the first century. And we're going to read some verses here. The first verse has the primary statement, and the rest of it is like the implications of the first statement. Here it goes. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. should be up on the Screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the main statement. What does it look like? For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, were, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That is a magnificent passage. In fact, it's one long sentence in the original Greek language. Identity, I wonder if you'd agree, identity is one of the hottest topics of our day. And how someone understands who they are and what their place in society is, has undergone a revolution in the last few decades, especially since the turn of the century. I wonder if I asked you to give three words that most especially deep down for you define who you are, your sense of identity, I wonder what they would be. I wonder if there's anything toxic in those, that mixture of words. Now, a, a person's identity 
has always been formed in relation to the significant people and events in their life. So one writer says this, the young child has no clear picture of himself. He sees himself only in the mirror of his parents' evaluation of himself. That's why those early days even, early weeks, months, years, are so critical, not just to feeding that child, but to helping that child understand who it is. And so as life goes on, those parents or parents or carers and others as life moves forward play a huge part in forming identity. In the end, such that we ask questions, um, I am, or we conclude, I'm loved or not. I matter or not. I'm beautiful or ugly. I'm safe or unsafe. I'm capable or stupid. I've succeeded or failed. Now, previous generations were taught to look around for their identity. What I mean is this. They looked to family, community, and religion in order to form their identity. I heard what was said, I saw what was expected, and I generally conformed. That's how it went. Identity was received externally and validated externally. And any deviation I felt from that tended to be quashed under the weight of expectation. There are obviously pros and cons to that. But today, if you know anything about our culture at all in this country, in the West generally, you will know that how identity is grasped these days has undergone a revolution. Because today, in stark contrast, people, are, in, especially the young, are encouraged to look within for identity. Not around, but within. To discover their own felt sense of identity by listening to their inner voice and their feelings. What you feel is who you are. And society will validate what you feel whatever you decide. Obviously, the goal of that has been greater happiness, greater freedom, less constraints from family, community, and religion. And yet the result, and you must be aware of this, the result very often has been growing insecurity, growing confusion, growing uncertainty, all manner of health, mental health challenges too, especially for the young. If you have a teenage child or a child in late primary school, you will know all about this. It's a huge challenge for the young whose brains are still forming, who are coping with hormones flying off in all directions, who float in a sea of adolescent insecurity and toxic social media. And somehow, for some bizarre reason, culture says to them, in that state of flux and insecurity, you are what you feel. 
It's a recipe, as we are seeing, for absolute disaster. But it's not just the young. Don't tell me you've never faced any identity questions if you're not young anymore. Identity is a challenge for each and every one of us. Anxiety over how we see ourselves and how we want others to see us can range from an occasional nagging doubt to an absolute constant weighty terror. Do I matter? Does anyone care? Who am I? In 2015, there was a woman who was found in the U.S. state of California suffering from extreme amnesia. And she had launched an online appeal to see if she could present herself online. Would anybody who recognizes her tell her who she was? The woman who goes by the name Sam and is believed to be Australian was found by firefighters in Southern California earlier in 2015. And in a TV interview, she said, I can't remember anything. How I got here. I didn't have anything on me. No jewelry, no purse, nothing. There is this thick fog over my memory that I can't see through. Well, doctors discovered that she had a huge cancerous tumor, and they operated on her, and they believe that may have related to her memory loss. But she said that she fears she may die before finding out who she is. What a terrifying situation. Let me tell you, it's not much different in our culture, particularly among the young a desperate fear to find out who they are. But as always with God, there is good news. As always with God, there is a better story. There's another way for a person to determine his or her identity. Not only from around, from community and family, certainly not just from within, but from above. From God, God who alone is the one who knows us properly. God who alone is the one who's made us. God who alone is the one who has the authority to tell us who we are really. You see, the story of the Bible tells us certain crucial things about ourselves. It tells us things like this. It tells us, as Katie powerfully said earlier, that we are created in God's image. What that means is a little bit mysterious sometimes, but there's something about us, not our physical selves, but there's something about us that reflects something of God. If that doesn't give value and dignity, I have no idea what will. The Bible tells me consistently, as we've been celebrating this morning, that I am loved. I couldn't be more secure, however I'm feeling, because I am perfectly loved, outside of whether I'm lovable or not. And I'm designed to love him, to serve him, and live for his glory. I therefore have purpose in life because I belong to him. I have dignity. I'm secure. I have purpose. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you will say, yes, I know that. I've heard that. 
If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me tell you, you may have been searching for some sense of identity, something solid. This is it. This is what you were designed and created for. But inevitably, even God's children face threats to a healthy, God-given identity. Things happen to us. Things are done by us. Traumatic events especially can make us doubt. Can those things be true? Is God really who he says he is? Am I really who he tells me and that I've heard that I am? There are, there's a really big issue, as you'll know today, in terms of identity theft, which isn't really someone stealing your identity as such, but someone pretending to be you. It's a massive issue of fraud and all sorts going on. And I saw online, here are some signs that you should watch out for of identity theft. Things like this, missing documents, missing mail, maybe some unrecognized entries on your bank statement. Things like surprise deliveries, things like apparently tampered bins. Someone rifling through your bins to see if they can steal a bank statement and, or whatever and take your identity. The Christian faces the threat of identity theft. I am loved, I'm secure, I'm wanted and so on as we'll see some more things in a moment. But there is a liar out there. There is an enemy who wants to steal from you your identity. There is your flesh and your consciousness of your misdeeds and so on that seek also to rob away your secure identity in God. I wonder if any of these signs of identity theft you can recognize as a Christian. Inferiority. Anxiety. The need to prove yourself. A performance-drivenness, being racked with guilt, people-pleasing, fishing for compliments, comparisonitis. I wonder if any of those resonate with you. If they do, you may be a Christian this morning who is in danger of identity theft. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 1 that we read earlier. Who or what does God say I am? Because at the end of the day, that is what is going to matter. Well, the answer is, in the first verse, verse 3, that I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What a remarkable statement. Which is then explained by the rest of the verses we read, verses 4 to 14 in which we have really a number of identity statements. You are blessed. If you're a Christian, you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Here's what it looks like. It largely looks like what God has declared your identity to be. Here are four. I put it to you. These are mind-blowing. Here are four. If you're a Christian, you'll have heard these before. But I tell you, they are mind-blowing. First, chosen. Chosen, verse 4, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. I wonder if being wanted is perhaps a person's greatest psychological need. 
I don't know that. I haven't read that anywhere. I wonder. I wonder if simply being wanted to some level by someone, by some organizer, by whatever, is mankind's greatest psychological need. Think about it. From knowing that your parents wanted you. And for many, that's obvious. But for someone who knows that wasn't true, you'll find out just how significant that is. From that to things like school sports teams. Remember those awful moments? Some of you are in pain as I, I'm so sorry to bring this pain on you. But you're remembering these awful moments where you're lined up. And there are two captains who are the best. And they're asked to pick. And there are some of you who feel lovely about this, because I was always picked first. I was very good and very smug. And there are others of you who are crawling inside and still traumatized by standing alone. No one wants you. Have we got to have him? Can't they have her? From your parents to sports teams to being wanted by friends to being wanted in a job interview to someone asking you to marry them, being wanted. Now we know there is theological mystery in these verses, but here is the fact. I wonder if you can believe it. If you've come to trust in Jesus and belong to God, it is because he chose you. It felt like you were choosing him. But there was a bigger mover going on, choosing you and causing you to choose him. In fact, in verse 5, he predestined us. It's absolutely remarkable. And he predestined you in love. God wasn't set with your sports team at school well, I choose that one, and I'll choose that one, and have I got to choose that one? Oh, well, okay, I'll have that one. No, in love, he predestined us. We had a wedding yesterday. Stephen and Nat uh, got married. It was a lovely wedding. <clears throat> Stephen's speech was excellent. He did so well. And in it, he expressed massive gratitude that Nat had chosen him. And he expressed how every, I think he says something like, every day from now, I will happily choose you, Nat, as my wife. Do you know God? It's a little bit like God. I am never, ever, ever, ever regretted choosing you. And every day I would happily choose you again because he predestined before the creation of the world that he would have you. But God's choosing is greater still than Stephen's or Nat's, obviously, greater than that. Because God chose before the creation of the world, knowing all time, knowing all that you would do, all the good, all the bad, all the rubbish, all the moments you believe him, all the moments you doubt him, and he still said, I'll have you. Stephen and Nat are at the height of their love choosing each other. They will have to decide to keep choosing each other, no doubt, as time goes by, as well as the wonderful moments and days and weeks and months. 
But God, knowing all your weaknesses, knowing every moment of doubt, knowing every slip up, knowing everything you would do right, wrong, and in between, still said, I'll have you. I choose you in love. I predestine you to be mine. It's absolutely extraordinary. Which tells me this, that his choosing and his keeping was never about me and never will be about me. And so I can every day celebrate I am chosen. I'm having a really bad day. I'm chosen. I'm having a really good day. It doesn't make me chosen. I'm having a really bad day. It doesn't make me unchosen. Think of those best moments. You haven't impressed God so that he'll choose you. He chose you anyway. Think of those worst moments. They never caused you to be unchosen, and he never, ever will. He chose me despite my unloveliness and all because of his loveliness. Let me ask you, where else can you get that? Who am I? I am chosen. I'm chosen. I'm forgiven. You see, we can go further. Verses 7 to 8a. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption and forgiveness are here clearly clearly closely connected. Together they mean this. He has paid fully for our release from guilt and shame because of our sinfulness. I am not only chosen because of my unloveliness, despite my unloveliness, I'm forgiven of all my unloveliness. It's remarkable. I wonder if you can spot the flaw in this, because it sounds good, but there's a fatal flaw. See if you can spot it. Four years ago, in a large city in the far west, rumors spread that a certain Catholic woman was having visions of Jesus. The reports reached the archbishop. He decided to check her out. Is it true, ma'am, he said, that you have visions of Jesus? Yes, the woman replied simply. Well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. He was like giving a bit of a test. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell me the sins of your past? Exactly. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days went by. The woman notified him of a recent apparition. Please come, she said. Within the hour, the bishop arrived, eager to know what had been said. He trusted trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me on the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, bishop. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins of you that you confessed in your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation. His eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand, gazed deep into his eyes. Bishop, she said, these are his exact words. I can't remember. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Do you know that that's fatally flawed? However lovely it sounds. I'll tell you why it's fatally flawed. It's not the whole truth because God has not simply forgotten my sin. 
What if he should remember it one day? He has forgiven my sin and paid for it. People sometimes say, God, God forgets your sin. No, he doesn't. God, God doesn't suffer from amnesia himself. God knows everything, good, bad, past, present, future, all over the place. He's not forget, forgotten a single thing ever. If he simply forgot your sin, that would be one thing. But to remember it and know every single thing and yet forgive you is remarkable. He forgives. He doesn't forget. Forgiveness, someone said, is the absolute refusal to hold ill will against someone for what they did or didn't do. That's forgiveness. That's what God does. He hasn't forgotten. He's forgiven. He has chosen not to hold your sin against you. That is amazing. You've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. He knows it and he's paid for it and loves you and has chosen to forgive you and not hold it against you. Who am I? I'm chosen and I'm forgiven. Wow. I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted. Because we can go further still and say that I am adopted. I'm not only chosen, I'm not only, dare I say it, forgiven, I'm invited into God's family. So verses 4 to 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. Now, the Bible tells us that God is many things. He's holy, he's king, he's lord, he's mighty, he's transcendent, he's imminent, he's loving, he's merciful, he's alpha and omega, he's all sorts of things. And all of those are glorious. But there is one term for God which is surely more outrageously wonderful than all the others. God is Father. And the Bible tells us that we are many things in relationship to God, some of which we're looking at. We're servants of Christ, we're friends of Christ, we're brothers and sisters of Christ, we are holy, we're a royal priesthood. And yet, with all the range of terms that the New Testament gathers together to describe who we now are in Christ, who we are in relation to God as Father, I would say, is the pinnacle. We are sons and daughters by adoption. We who by nature are enemies of God, guilty, condemned, not naturally his children, are chosen, forgiven, and called into his family with the full rights of sons. That's why we can be called joint heirs with Christ. <laughs> you can't get your head around that, and neither can I. Joint heirs with Christ. Not just there's Jesus and then there's a whole load of other sons. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. But we are also joint heirs because we are adopted with the full right of sons. That's how adoption works. Listen to this. A few years ago, my wife and I witnessed the adoption of a child in a Florida courtroom. We listened to the judge as he spoke to the adopting parents in gravest tones. 
Before I sign my name to this document, he warned them, I need to know that you realize what you're about to do. In a room of sobering silence in which you could hear a pin drop, a judge looked each parent in the eye and said, if I sign my name to this document, there is no court in the United States that will overturn this order. If I sign my name to this document, it means that this child is yours, legally yours, as though he were your natural son. There is no guarantee how he will turn out. He may disappoint you. He may turn to drugs as a teenager. He may develop a serious illness, and you will be responsible to care for him. If I sign my name to this document, that means this child is yours from this day forward. He is protected by the laws of this state. You cannot turn him back once I sign my name to this document. <laughs> Do you understand this? Those parents did not hesitate to answer. We understand, they responded. Then is it your will that you become the parents of this child, the judge asked. It is, they replied. The judge signed the order, got up, and congratulated the parents with their child. There is no way of going back, of unadopting. God will never unadopt you. You have been adopted with the full rights of a son, as if you were naturally a son, though you're not, or daughter. It is an absolutely remarkable thing that God has done. One writer said this, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Don't you agree? It's so right to be good to be right with God, chosen, forgiven, but to be adopted so that God is now my Father is absolutely remarkable. Who am I? I'm chosen, I'm forgiven, I'm adopted, and we can take one final step and say that we are sealed. Verses 13b to 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God marks us out as his own by putting his spirit in us, putting his stamp on us. Imagine an ancient um, king who's writing a letter, seals it, gets his ring, puts it in the wax on the letter and seals it. This is really from me. This really belongs to me. Imagine a farmer who stamps, that's what it means to seal, stamps his, his cattle with a mark to say they belong to me. God has put his spirit in you to help you to live this life of loving him and serving him, but also to mark you out as his. He is mine, he is mine, he is mine. I've sealed him with the Holy Spirit who is now in him. God has invited us into his family and he has, as it were, invited himself into us forever to live with us. There could not be greater intimacy. There could not be a greater union than God and his children. Chosen, forgiven, adopted, sealed. And that's just four of the things in this passage. Wow. 
Suffice it just to finish by saying this, that all of this is mine as a believer. All of this can be yours if you're not a Christian here this morning because of where I am. What do I mean by that? In this passage, 10 times Paul uses the phrase in him or in Christ or in Christ Jesus. So verse 4, I've been chosen in Christ. 7, I've been forgiven in Christ. Verse 5, I've been adopted through Christ. Verse 13, I'm marked with the Holy Spirit in Christ. Because God, in this extraordinary act of salvation, has placed me in his Son, all of this belongs to me. I haven't achieved a thing. I haven't made myself worthy of any it, but I have been placed in Christ. It is all a gift and no graft. Who am I? <clears throat> Chosen, forgiven, adopted, sealed. Amen. Now, if you are not a Christian here this morning, it is a joy genuinely to have you here. If you're watching online and you're not a Christian this morning, I just simply want to say to you that you get in Christ by reaching out like a beggar reaches out for what he needs. That's what faith is called. Faith reaches out to take what God offers. This morning, you could be chosen, forgiven, adopted, and sealed. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I want to ask you, has any of that identity been stolen from you? Are any of those markers that I mentioned of identity theft hanging around your life? Anxiety, comparison, always fishing for compliments, comparisonitis, whatever it happens to be. Can you just be honest with yourself for a moment? Honest with God? And in a minute, here's what I'm going to do. I know I do this sometimes. Do it again today. When and if you know what your thing is, I just want you to stand where you are because there's some real power in doing something. And that's just the simplest thing I can ask you to do. Or if you know, I don't actually identify with any of that, but being chosen, forgiven, adopted, and sealed are remarkable and this morning, I'm going to grab hold of that one again. Because I've forgotten that one. Or well, that one's drifting from me. Will you just stand where you are? I'm trusting that all of us will want to grab one of them. Or there'll be things where we are in danger of identity being robbed from us. And I want to ask that this morning you'll take the massively courageous act of daring to believe what God says in his word against what you feel and hear from around and from within. And when you've stood, just start talking to God. His arms are wide open. You are in no danger of being pushed away. It's not possible. It's just not possible. So talk to him freely. Tell him, this is where I am. This is what I'm struggling with. You have to identify it. And then whatever it feels like, you've got to push it away and make space for the truth. 
And you've got to say, Lord, this is going to be a wrestle for me, but I choose to believe you. I am chosen. Or I repent of comparisonitis. And I'm going to take the first step in getting away from that. Because I don't need to. (laughs) I'm completely accepted by the one who really counts. Holy Spirit, thank you that you dwell in us. Now come and make truth live in us. Transform lives this morning. I pray, God, for courage to believe against what feels like one's history. Some of you, this might be the first step and you need to talk to someone. You might need to go home. You might need to start processing it. But folks, I want to tell you the good news this morning. We are chosen. We are forgiven. We are adopted. And we are sealed. Praise God.